Please open your Bibles uh, to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Our message for this morning is Philippians 1, 3 through 11. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes... And a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. These words, which were written by King Solomon, echo, I think, the frustrations that many of us experience as we make our way through life. A man wakes up, he gets out of bed, goes to work, Spends most of his time in labor trying to earn some money for his family. At the end of the day, he comes home, maybe gets to spend a couple of hours with his kids before bedtime, and then he goes to bed, and the whole cycle starts over again. His wife also wakes up, gets out of bed, makes breakfast for the family, helps her husband get out the door, and then she starts her work for the day. If she's a stay-at-home mom, maybe that means she starts a load of laundry after that, or maybe she goes and does some shopping. Whatever it is, she does her tasks for the day. Her husband comes home, they eat dinner, go to bed. And the very next day, she gets up, and the laundry hamper is full once again. And her family is hungry for breakfast, and so she makes it again. There's an awful lot of monotony to life, is there not? That's what King Solomon is describing in this passage from Ecclesiastes. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. There just seems to be this unending cycle to life, this repetition of toil, of Labor that never seems to come to any end and never seems to bring any lasting fruit. I mean, do you ever stop to think about this? Do you struggle with this at all? The Scripture compares our life to a vapor. It's like a breath that appears on a cold winter's morning. Just as soon as it comes out of your mouth, it's gone. We work and we labor and we toil and then we die. And within a couple of generations, we're completely forgotten. We raise a family, provide for our family so they can labor and toil before they too eventually die and are forgotten. What's it all for? What's the use of it all? Vanity of vanities, right? That's what we want to scream sometimes, don't we? Don't we? It's not just me, right? Please don't tell me I'm the only one who gets to Sunday night and feels this as I think about how I'm about to start the whole cycle over again for the week. 
I mean, outside of Jesus, this is the wisest man who ever lived who wrote these words. So if you're a thinking person, you're bound to feel this from time to time. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. One of my favorite things about Christian doctrine is how it reminds us that all is not vanity. Quite the contrary, what Christian doctrine teaches us is that there is actually tremendous worth in literally everything we do. That's because of the very core of Christian teaching is the idea that mankind was created for an incredibly meaningful purpose, what is really the highest purpose of every created being, and that's to glorify God as the creature made in His image. If you want to understand where the notion of sin and judgment comes from, if you want to understand the logic of such concepts as eternal punishment, if you want to understand God's motives in redemption, they all tie back to this singular truth that man was made in the image of God. That man, and man most specifically, of all of God's creatures, was created for His glory. You stop and think about that for a moment. And what you realize is this means that literally everything we do is meaningful. Incredibly meaningful. I don't know about you, but I struggle with ambition. I always have. Yeah, that's my pride and my arrogance, and it's a deadly combination. In fact, I'll tell you an embarrassing little secret. It wasn't about, until about 7th or 8th grade that it occurred to me that maybe one day I might not be famous. <laughs> and it's kind of silly. But it's true. I just assumed that naturally as someone as talented and gifted as me was going to be famous. It wasn't even a question. And then finally it occurred to me one day, wait a second, maybe I'm not as talented and gifted as I think I am. Who knows, maybe I may just end up being you know, a regular guy. I chuckle at that now, but listen, that rocked my world at the time. I mean, quite honestly, and being completely serious here, as that idea developed over the next several years, it actually turned into a kind of panic. I mean, to spend your whole life toiling in obscurity just to die and have all your work be forgotten, what's the use of that? You mean it's possible that I might not do something really important with my life? I might not develop some revolutionary philosophical theory or write a groundbreaking novel? I might just end up working in a warehouse somewhere. Shipping, I don't know, dog biscuits or kitchen spatulas. And that's it? That's all I'm going to do with my life? What's the point of that? And then I became a Christian. And suddenly I realized that one of the beauties of my newfound faith was how it added value and meaning to everything I did, no matter what I did. And the reason is because I now realize that everything I did, no matter what I did, I did as an ambassador of the most high, most exalted, most majestic king in the universe. And that's God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And all the works that I performed here in the flesh, as mundane and as fleeting as they might be to human eyes, were yet noticed by my king and would be remembered in his sight for an eternity. Of course, none of this is to say that heaven is going to be about God 
praising us for our service because it's absolutely not. It's totally not that. Quite the opposite, actually. Heaven is going to be about us praising Him for His grace, not Him praising us for our service. All the same, this doesn't mean that our work is meaningless here on earth. There's eternal worth in everything we do here in the flesh. And it doesn't matter the position, doesn't matter the role, doesn't matter the task. This is what's known by Protestants as the concept of vocation. That term vocation, it comes from the Latin vocare, and it means to call. And the reason why you associate that term with the idea of a career is because during the Reformation, Protestants began to understand that every career, every job, every task, no matter how seemingly small or mundane, was performed as creatures made in the image of God to the glory of God. And in this sense, it wasn't just a job they were doing, it was a vocation, a calling from God, a commission even, if you will. And this means that every job has worth. It means that there is dignity in every type of labor. It doesn't matter if you're changing a tire or changing a diaper. It doesn't matter if you do your work in a field with a shovel or in an office with a pen. If you give orders or if you take them. There is dignity and worth in all of our labor because it's all performed for the eternal praise and glory of God. So no, no, all is not vanity. It may appear vain to our mortal eyes, but when we walk by faith and not merely by sight, what we learn is that it's most definitely not in vain. Because all does work towards a particular end, a lasting end, a meaningful end, and that's to the praise of our Heavenly Father, our gracious and wonderful King. I hope this gives you hope, Christian. I hope this helps you see the usefulness and worth of all your labors. Of course, now the question is, how do we perform this task well, right? After all, it's quite easy to be filled with apathy if we think our work is in vain. But when we know that our job is worth doing, then I'd assume we want to do it right. We want to do it well. So what does that look like? What enables us to fulfill this incredibly noble responsibility and to do literally everything we do for the glory of God? That's the question that Paul is going to answer for us this morning in Philippians 1, 3 through 11. The title of our current series in Philippians is The Evangelistic Psyche, and the purpose of this series is to consider how the gospel transforms our thinking about the world around us. Our model in this instance, of course, is the Apostle Paul. Outside of Jesus, he's perhaps the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen. And in this letter, we're getting a peek into the motivations that drove him to the ends of the earth and even jail and eventually martyrdom, all for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our current topic is gospel-minded prayer. And in this brief series of messages from Philippians 1, 3 through 11, we're learning how the gospel shaped Paul's prayer concerns specifically. This is now our fourth week, and this passage is our third, actually, in the section where Paul explains his petitions in verses 9 through 11. And what we've learned so far is that Paul's prayers were rooted, first and foremost, in the glory of God. And this makes sense, since God's concern for His glory lies at the very heart of the gospel. Man was created to glorify God, sin disrupted that purpose, Christ is redeeming it. This is the basic essence of the gospel. Man's redemption from the penalty of sin to the praise and glory of God. 
What this means is that as Paul prayed for the, for the Philippians, he prayed that they might be, quote, pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. God's passion for His glory is the base motivation that drives all His actions in the Scriptures, even including the act of redemption. And so with this in mind, Paul prays that the Philippians might glorify God. After all, that is their purpose. And how will they glorify God? Again, we've seen in two ways. They'll glorify God through their active participation in their conformity to God's character. Meaning they'll glorify God by declaring that He's righteous. Which they do not only in their expressions of praise, but through their willing and joyful submission to His commands by faith. So they glorify God through their worship, through their active participation in their conformity to God's character. That's one way they give Him glory. And then number two, they glorify God through their passive transformation into His character, which comes by the grace of God. That's what Paul means when he says that he prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The idea is that this is a righteousness that's actually supplied by God as an expression of His grace, and so He gets the glory for it. Their repentance, their transformation is an expression of His glorious character. And so He gets the glory for it. And if you're thinking of how this works, the idea seems to be that God supplies the change of heart that enables the Philippians to offer Him this active, willful, joyful praise. So this is the trend in Paul's prayers. Paul's concerns are rooted in the glory of God, and this leads him to pray for the Philippians' sanctification, for their growth in personal holiness. We saw in our message last week, or actually two weeks ago, I guess that would be now, that this concern for personal holiness is a kind of end in and of itself. I often point out that our present mission as Christians is the advancement of the gospel. And that's true, and there's no doubt that our growth in holiness contributes to the advancement of the gospel. However, we should not take this to mean that our holiness is only a means to an end, the end being the numerical advancement of the gospel. No, again, the root motivation that drives all of God's actions, even in His act of redemption, is His passion for His glory. He saves so that He can be glorified through our redemption. The ultimate goal is the glory of God, and so if our personal holiness brings Him glory, that is an end unto itself. Even if our righteousness never produces a single convert, it is still incredibly worthwhile, invaluable, really, because it still serves its ultimate end, which is the praise and glory of God. Again, I hope this gives you hope. Even when no one is looking, even when you're serving God in utter and complete obscurity, your obedience, your struggle against sin is still worthwhile. It's not a waste because it still gives glory to God. In fact, it's actually very important that you understand this point so that you don't revert into a kind of hypocrisy where you only obey when others are looking. If you want to be a person who walks in integrity, a person who is the same in private as they are in public, it's all going to come through this thought that all your righteousness is worthwhile in God's sight, even when no one is looking. So again, this is how the gospel is transforming Paul's prayer life. It produces a concern for God's glory that leads him to pray for the personal holiness of his fellow believers. The question is, how are they going to do this? What do they need to glorify God? 
And this led us into the focus of our last message from this text where we learned that because of these concerns, Paul prays that the Philippians might be able to, quote, approve what is excellent. Or as the Christian Standard Bible translates it, the things that are superior, so that you may approve the things that are superior. That's really the better way of translating this verse. There's a sense of comparison in this term that the ESV translates as excellent. And the idea is that Paul wants the Philippians to be able to discern those things that truly matter in life, the things that are really important, so that they can pursue those things first, and this to the praise and glory of God. What might those things be? We talked about this some last time. In the situation that the Philippians are in, this would mean things like perseverance in the gospel. They're starting to suffer for their faith. Paul wants them to discern that both participation in the resurrection of Christ and the glory that God receives through their suffering is worth more than their immediate comfort. It would also mean things like doctrinal fidelity. It may be that the Philippians are considering a minor doctrinal compromise for the sake of security. If so, it doesn't seem to be anything so serious as to jeopardize their salvation. Even still, Paul wants them to know that their relief isn't worth it. It's worth contending for the truth, since it's through this truth that God is glorified. Lastly, but certainly not least, Paul wants them to understand that the unity of the church also matters. We'll get into this more today, but as much as Paul believes in the need to contend for truth, we'll also see as we continue through Philippians that he also believes that they should contend for unity. Meaning they shouldn't run at the first sight of disagreement. They need to actively fight to maintain the unity of the church because the unity of the body, this also matters. Now, of course, these aren't the only things that matter, but it gives us a picture of what Paul's praying for here. And it gives us a sense of how we ought to be praying for one another as well. If the glory of God is what matters, then we all need discernment to know what that is exactly that glorifies God. After all, we don't do this by nature, right? Sin has so corrupted our hearts and our minds that we often have a very difficult time knowing what the right thing is to do, let alone having the willingness to do it. So we should pray, first and foremost, that we might be able to discern the will of the Lord, that we might be able to approve those things that are excellent and pursue those things first, rather than the things that truly are vanity. So now the thing we need to know is, how do we develop that kind of discernment? How do we grow in that kind of knowledge? We've been created for and called for this wonderful purpose to glorify God and We're able to glorify God in literally everything we do, but what does that look like? How do we develop the discernment that's required to approve what is truly excellent in each and every situation? And this brings us finally to Paul's requests for the Philippians. I've said that there's this butterfly effect in Paul's writing where he's able to see how the butterfly flapping its wings in Africa produces the hurricane in New York two weeks later. Only the way that Paul tends to explain this cause and effect relationship, it kind of goes backwards. He starts with the hurricane in New York, and then he says, and that was caused by this, which was caused by this, which was caused by this, and so on, and he eventually traces his way back to the butterfly in Africa. And so even though we're moving forward on the page, we're actually moving backwards conceptually. 
And that's exactly what happens in today's passage. Paul begins with his request for the Philippians in verse 9, and then he goes on to explain the reasons for those requests in verses 10 through 11. And I've said that if you want to understand the significance of these requests, then you really have to start at the end of the passage and work your way backwards. And that's what we've been doing over the past several weeks. We now understand the motivations of Paul's prayers. Paul wants the Philippians to develop discernment, and he wants them to develop discernment so they can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, all to the praise and glory of God. So if Paul wants them to develop that discernment for that reason, then what does he pray for them? In short, what develops discernment? And I'd have you note the implications to the answer of that question are obviously larger than just our prayer life. If the point is that we need discernment in order to glorify God with our lives, then we probably shouldn't just be praying for it, we should also be pursuing it through whatever avenues would emerge as a result of the request that Paul makes here. You guys understand this? This is important. What Paul prays for here tells us much much of what we must pursue if we want to glorify God with our lives. So again, what is it? What enables us to develop the discernment that equips us to know what is truly excellent, what is truly superior? Let's go ahead and find out now. The answer may surprise you. The passage, once again, is Philippians 1, 3-11. Let's go ahead and read it together. We're paying particular attention to verses 9 through 11, so I'd encourage you to listen close as we read through that section of the passage this morning. Paul writes this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. In today's passage, Paul prays that the Philippians would abound with two characteristics so that they may be able to approve what is excellent to the praise and glory of God. And the first characteristic in this passage, if we're continuing to work our way backwards, is knowledge. Knowledge. Of course, this occurs at the, in the second half of verse 9. Paul prays that their love would abound more and more, quote, with knowledge and all discernment. Of all the characteristics that Paul mentions here, or of the two characteristics, it's not like there's a lot of them, of the two characteristics that Paul mentions here, this is probably the least surprising. But it's still one that probably needs a little fine-tuning in the thinking of a lot of Christians. I would imagine that many of us, when we talk about discerning the will of the Lord, what we're really saying is that we're trying to figure out what's best for us. The assumption, more or less, is that we are at the center of the universe. Now, we never say that, 
but we secretly think it. We act as if the most important thing in the universe is our personal comfort and happiness, and we just assume that God's in on the game. That's how we interpret the love of God. We assume that the love of God means that He's really interested in granting us the desires of our heart. Now, don't get me wrong, God is concerned with the happiness of His children. It's just that that concern does not translate into an automatic interest in giving us the desires of our heart. And that's because the way God wants us to be happy is by us finding our satisfaction in Him. Again, He loves us, and so He's actually jealous for us. He wants us to find our delight in Him instead of the idols of our heart. And this is how we need to fine-tune our thinking as we discuss discerning the will of the Lord. We need to realize that when we're praying for discernment, we're not asking, how is God going to help me obtain the idols of my heart? Because if He loves you, He's never going to do that. Not unless He means to discipline you with those idols. So instead, we need to ask ourselves, how can I glorify God in this situation? Because that's the kind of happiness that God wants us to find, the joy that comes from our finding joy in Him, which again actually works both to our good and for His glory. When we start thinking this way, this actually takes a lot of skill. After all, when we begin to think this way, we're not just trying to discern what we ought to do, what the appropriate actions or steps to take are in any given situation, but we're actually trying to discern the quality even of our goals and motives as well. We're trying to discern if the intended object of our actions actually glorifies God. That's not just something we can assume. We can't just assume that whatever we want actually brings glory to God. No, that's something we need the Scriptures to supply for us. If you think about this, this would be natural in really most any relationship. If a husband wants to display his affection for his wife, he doesn't just start with his own desires and then project that onto his wife. Like he doesn't say, well, I know what sort of gift I'd like. I'd like a brand new rotten reel. Or, oh, I know, a new golf putter. That's it. That's the perfect anniversary gift. I mean, he's going to have one very disappointed wife if he went out and did something like that, right? Because she's a completely different person than he is, with a very different set of desires. So if the husband's going to please his wife, he's going to have to learn about her, right? He's, going to, he's not going to start with his desires because his desires don't necessarily match up with hers. Instead, he needs to learn about the things that she values, the things that she likes. And after he spends some time with her, listens to her, asks her questions... He can finally learn, you know, my wife feels loved when I buy her flowers. And her favorite types of flowers are daisies. Or maybe he'll learn that what she really wants, what she really values, isn't a gift at all. But an evening alone with her husband, or maybe even an evening out away from everybody, right? Away from the kids. You know how that works, right? Not everyone appreciates the same things. Not everyone interprets Love in the same way. Take employees, for example. The way you thank some employees is with a raise. They value money, and so you pay them to thank them. The way you thank others is with praise. They want to be recognized for their work. They want to know that they're appreciated. Still others want time. 
So you reward their labor with some extra time off or with a more relaxed work schedule. You have to adjust your expression of gratitude to the tastes of the person if the point is to demonstrate your love for them. Well, it's the same way with God and us. God is a person. You understand he's not a force or type of energy, but an actual person, just like you and I. Three persons, actually. One God and three persons, who are entirely unified, not only in essence, but in thinking and action as well. One God and three persons. This means that he has desires. He has likes and dislikes. And since his personhood is distinct from ours, we must first learn what he takes pleasure in before we can do what is actually pleasing to him. The Bible seems to indicate that there's a sense in which this would be true even apart from sin, simply because of the way God made us, but this is most especially true because of sin. Again, it's like I've said so many times over the past several weeks, sin has darkened our minds such that we don't really know with much certainty what is pleasing to God in our natural state. There's a sense in which we can understand something of the character of God from the creation, according to Romans 1. Likewise, this knowledge provides us with a kind of innate understanding of right and wrong, according to Romans 2. But our sin works to suppress the truth to the degree that much of what we could know about God is lost. And even what we do know is confused by the deceit that emerges from our own sinful desires. The result is that if we're going to know just what it is that glorifies God, then we have to learn about Him. We can't just assume it. We have to seek it out. We have to learn. And since we can't start with our own desires or even our own logic, corrupted as our thinking is by sin, we must seek this knowledge of God from a source outside of ourselves. Thankfully, God has provided us with just such a resource where we can learn about His desires, and that's in His sacred scriptures. But we, as His people, must be diligent to search these Scriptures so that we can learn what the will of the Lord is, so that we can abound in knowledge and all discernment, and so that we might be able to approve what is excellent. This is where many Christians go wrong. They begin with a flawed starting point in their thinking. They begin with their own understandings, their own assumptions about God, and that's a problem because their assumptions have been corrupted by sin. There's only one starting point for truth, and that's the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. To quote Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. If we want to know what is true, if we want to abound in knowledge and all discernment, that we might approve what is excellent, then this is where we must begin, with the Word of God. And brothers and sisters, just so you know, there is indeed much to learn about how to be pleasing to God. I lack the time to dive into the specifics of all the ways that this Scripture can transform our lives, but suffice to say, it really does extend into literally every aspect of our lives. I think you see just how far it can extend, expressed relatively well in the Old Testament. The Jews, of course, were a people set apart to serve God, and that meant a different way of eating, a different way of dressing, a different set of holidays. It affected their economic system, their political system, their expressions of worship. 
There wasn't a single aspect of their life that wasn't in some way touched by the fact that they were a people set aside to display His glory. Now, I'm not saying that we're supposed to go and live like the Old Testament Jew, because I think once we understand what this book tells us about where we stand in redemptive history, it's pretty clear that we live by a different uh, set of instruction. Still, this is not to say that our faith does not touch every single component of our lives, because it does. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, there's so much to discuss here, far, far more than we have time for here this morning. But what we must understand at the very least is that we must learn how to glorify God with our lives and at least part of the way that we will abound in knowledge and all discernment is through the study of God's Word, the Bible. But this raises another question. If sin has corrupted our thinking, then how can we know that our interpretation of the Scripture is correct? After all, the Scripture tells us that we suppress what knowledge we do have of God with our unrighteousness, right? So how can we know that we aren't doing that even with the Scriptures themselves? Again, our enemy is inside of us. It's our sin nature, and we're very good at deceiving ourselves. And so how can we know that when we encounter the Scripture and make an interpretation of the text, that the conclusions we come to are indeed reflective of the will of God and not just an expression of our own sinful desires? And this leads us to our second characteristic, which is the first request, actually, that Paul makes in this passage. He doesn't just pray that they would abound in knowledge. He actually prays, first and foremost, that the Philippians would abound in love. Once again, this is the second characteristic that allows us to approve what is excellent. And I think this is actually the more surprising of the two characteristics once you consider that this is actually the foundational characteristic that Paul is requesting for their discernment. Look here one more time. Paul says, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Are you guys seeing this here? I've said before that Paul is very precise with his language. That he writes these long sentences with all these different clauses tossed in here and there so that you can understand very specifically what he means. And I've said that this is really helpful because it helps us understand the relation of these various concepts to one another with with tremendous specificity. The only problem is that sometimes Paul packs in these concepts so tightly that we fail to see the proper relationship of these ideas to one another if we're not careful. So look there one more time. Paul wants them to abound more and more in love. Why? Is he wanting them to abound in love so that they'll be pure and blameless? Is he wanting them to abound in love so that they'll glorify God in the day of Jesus Christ? Sure, kind of. But it's more specific than that. He wants them to abound in love more and more. Why? The first reason, the foundational reason, is stated at the beginning of verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. Isn't that interesting? 
Paul wants them to abound in love because he believes that this love will enable them to approve what is excellent. In fact, look here. Look at the way Paul states this. He wants them to abound in love with knowledge and all discernment. I don't know if you can catch the significance there, but that's significant. He's not praying that they would abound in love and knowledge as if these were two separate items. Rather, he's praying that they would abound in love in knowledge and all discernment, meaning it's a love supplied by truth, supplemented by truth. Or to put it still another way, and this may be the clearest way yet here, if you can remember just a little bit of your high school English grammar, Abound is the verb here. Love is the subject. Their love is to abound. And in all knowledge and discernment is the adverb, kind of the adverbial phrase that describes the way their love is to abound. So like he wants their love to truthfully abound. In other words, love is a thing that he's actually asking for, but it's a love that is controlled or regulated by another concept, mainly truth. He's praying for a truthful love. I mentioned this just a couple of weeks ago, so I won't belabor the point again here today, but this is something that our society at large seems to misunderstand, and this is something that even many Christians seem to misunderstand. Yes, God wants us to love one another. But this is not the same as simply granting one another the desires of our heart, just doing whatever makes us happy, since once again the glory of God stands as the primary concern of all things, even in our love for one another. In fact, the very basis for neighborly love in Christian theology is our love for God. Again, the first and primary commandment is to love God, and the second, Jesus says, is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this means that all love, all genuine and true love, must be rooted first and foremost in truth. We were actually talking about this uh, concept just a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school class. We said that one expression of love is the desire to be at peace with other people. But we said there are times when we cannot be at peace with other people. Paul says, Romans 12, 18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. He says, if possible. The implication clearly is that as much as we may desire peace with all people, sometimes that simply is not possible. And when is it not possible? Well, it's not possible when that peace requires that we compromise truth. It's like you see in the book of Acts. Of course, you guys know Christians are supposed to live in submission to the, the government, but in Acts 4, the Jewish leaders command Peter and John to stop preaching the gospel. And Peter and John refuse. Why? Peter answers. He says, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot speak, uh, but we can, uh, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They say they will not comply because peace in that instance would come at the cost of truth, at the cost of obedience to God. And that won't do. As much as our love drives us to be at peace with others, we cannot do so if it requires that we stop speaking truth. So we need to keep this in mind. This isn't a spineless kind of love that Paul is talking about here. It's a love that's grounded in truth, that's governed even by truth. And yet, interestingly enough, love is presented. 
as really the foundational component that produces this ability to prove to approve what is excellent. Not bare knowledge. Paul doesn't pray for bare knowledge. He prays for love primarily. So how does that work? Why is this so? Well, you know, truth has an interesting relationship with love. For instance, we're told in the Scripture that truth is properly disseminated only when it's accompanied with love. I think of Galatians 6, for instance, where we're told that we're to restore the one who is caught in a transgression with a spirit of gentleness. I think also of Colossians 4, 6, where Paul commands us to let our speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, meaning it must be cleansed of any impurities, that we may know how to answer each person. So truth is supposed to be accompanied by love. We are to speak truth in love. We also know that truth, real truth, produces love. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, The aim of our charge, or as the New American Standard translates it, the goal of our instruction is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. <laughs> and by the way, speaking of vanity, Paul continues saying, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The idea is that any instruction that does not produce love, it is not aiming to produce that in the person, is in fact a vain discussion, an empty discussion. And that's because true knowledge understands that the purpose of instruction ought to be love. Truthful love, but love. So there's this kind of relationship between love and truth. Love flows out of truth. And yet not to be missed is that the Scripture also indicates that truth or knowledge also comes as a result of love. For instance, I mentioned Colossians 4, 6 just a minute ago. Let me actually read that verse to you and listen closely here to the relationship between truth and love. Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Now again, this phrase, seasoned with salt, it means essentially, I won't get into the reasons why I say this today. I don't have time. But it means essentially, let it be removed of any impurities. Meaning, let it be cleansed of any impure motives or expressions. Why does he say to purify your speech that way? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The concept seems to be that as we sanctify our speech, the result will be an increase in wisdom. We will know how to answer each person. So this is one way that love produces knowledge. As we put on love, it removes those sinful tendencies that prevent us from seeing the truth. It leads to wisdom in this sense. However, there's another sense that love produces knowledge as well. In Ephesians 4, for instance, Paul explains that the body builds itself up as it speaks the truth in love. So once again, there's this idea that the truth, that truth produces maturity. The body builds itself as we speak truth to one another. And yet love is still essential to this growth. We must speak the truth in love. Again, truth must be accompanied with love. 
And the reason for this, Paul explains, is because the body builds itself up only as every part is contributing and only when each part is working properly. Now, to quote Ephesians 4, 15-16, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. The idea is that every one of us has a gift. Every one of us has unique experiences and backgrounds. Every one of us has unique insights into the Scripture, which are all needed for the growth of the body. And so, as Paul says, the body builds itself up in love. Love is essential to the growth of the body because it's through love that we maintain the unity that allows us to continue this truth-speaking process to one another. Indeed, this is what Paul notes in Colossians 3.14 when he says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Listen, love is the glue that holds the body together. And in this way, love is essential to the growth of the church because it's only as the body is held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly that we're able to establish one another in truth. In other words, we don't naturally agree as a body. Sin has corrupted us all in our thinking at different levels. And so we need to contend for the truth in one another's life through the speaking of truth to one another so that we can all grow in the knowledge of God. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we love one another enough to stick through the disagreements and corrections and sins against one another with the result being that we eventually become unified not only in spirit but in mind as we all eventually grow together in the truth. Love is essential for truth in this sense because it's only as the body is united by love that we're able to speak the truth in love and avoid being, in the words of Ephesians 4.14, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You understand what I'm saying here? You understand what Paul's saying there in Ephesians 4.14? Paul tells us that the only way we'll remain anchored in the truth is when we lock arms and stand together. Overall, I think it's this last point that Paul has in mind here in verse 9. The Philippians already have love. In many ways, they're an incredibly loving church. That's why he tells them to abound more and more in love. They do have some love. And yet it would seem that their unity is beginning to fracture. As we'll see, the source of this fracture is apparently some kind of ambitious spirit. There are some who are trying to get ahead in the world. They're not acting in love. And if they're not careful, this is going to lead to a divided church. And friends, a divided church is one that will be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. A divided church is not one that will contend for the truth in the face of persecution. And so Paul prays for the Philippians that they may abound more and more in love so that they may be able to approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So going back to the question that I raised at the beginning of this morning's message, how do we perform 
this incredibly noble task of glorifying God well? How will we grow in our holiness such that we do bring Him glory in literally everything we do? I think you see it expressed in this prayer that Paul offers up for the Philippians. It will occur as we pursue both truth and love. And as we pursue each at the same time. It can't just be one or the other. Or the one first and then the other. We need to pursue both at the same time because our growth in each is intertwined with our growth in the other. Love produces truth and truth produces love. You need both to grow in the other. So it must be precisely as Paul prays here. If we want to glorify God with our lives, then we must abound more and more in love with knowledge and all discernment. And with this in mind, as we close here this morning, I'd encourage you to ask yourself, which of these two characteristics may you be neglecting at this moment? Is it truth or is it love? If it's truth, I'd encourage you to recognize that you cannot know how to glorify God without truth. In fact, I'd go so far as to say you won't even care to glorify God without truth. You can find joy in every station of your life in the knowledge that whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. But you will not glorify God if you do not first learn what glorifies Him. So you must have truth. You cannot neglect the acquisition of knowledge. That said, neither can you neglect the exercise of love. Because it's love, actually, that allows you to grow grow into the truth so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So ask yourself, where am I deficient? And which of these two characteristics do I need to grow? And then do what you see Paul doing here. Pray to God that he would help you abound in that quality to the praise and glory of his name. Let's do that right now. Let's pray.